Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor Mittens. Thanks so much uh, for joining us in the podcast. Such an honor to have you. And also oh, congratulations for the winning the uh, Breakthrough Year Prize at Falling Walls. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much for inviting. It's my pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. So uh, first I would like to ask you how you would like to define yourself. Um, I am a researcher. I'm a research scientist uh, in Max Planck Institute. So I'm very curiosity-driven researcher, mm-hmm. uh, looking at into very challenging uh, new ideas, like also kind of basically trying to achieve my dreams. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, try to go for high-risk, exciting new directions that can hopefully create new directions in science and research and also make me happier. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So I um, also want to go back for your childhood. Do you have any memories about uh, your childhood where you were interested in science or technology as a kid? Any memories about that? Uh, as a kid, um, I didn't have a big dream about being a big scientist at the time, but it mm. was more about um, uh, curiosity. Uh, I think as a kid, I always liked to escape and go around and look to the environment and see how uh, people, how nature uh, work and how the things are, you know, observing a mm-hmm. lot, observing and and being curious of how things work and operate. So in that sense, I could say I learned a lot from animals when I was a kid. I had a lot of pets and I wanted to have a lot of pets, mm-hmm. birds and other animals. So those interactions all gave me a lot of perspective on observing, curious, being very curious and learning all the time new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wanted to be some, uh, do some things useful. Um, when I was a kid also, but mostly I dreamed to, to become maybe uh, in the ocean going and discovering new, uh, you know, environments or islands and, mm. you know, looking at like Captain Custo was my dream uh, person to work with yeah. uh, as a kid. So. That's very interesting. So I'm curious to ask you, because you said something interesting, I want to be a, a, like a big science and you really are, but as as you kid, what kind of question you had in your mind about when you looked at animals and what kind of question you have? Um, so first, I, I I got amazed and also still I'm still amazed how diverse and how different so many different animals flying and doing a lot of behavior and and moving locomoting. Mm-hmm. Um, so those that those aspects were so amazing. Insects also like how insects like have so much interesting shapes and and functions and, and can do many uh, unique things uh, in a very small scale. So all these um, amazing diversity and behavior, um, I, uh, when I asked more and more, I figured out that we don't know that much about them. And really, uh, of course, there is a lot of progress in science and engineering to understand them, but still so much unknown. So that uh, I was always asking like to learn more discovering the details of how animals behave, think, become intelligent, how they interact with the environment to survive in such complexity because they they live in so uh, unexpectedly changing, unstructured environment, but they can survive so well. Mm -hmm. And if I ask you, what do you think may be the missing pieces in understanding what's happening in nature? Because most of your research is motivated by nature. So what do you think may be the missing pieces in understanding? in the field? Uh, I think at every level of uh, biological systems, we have a lot of still um, topics to understand more, starting from materials that animals use, biomaterials, uh, structural elements, uh, muscles, and all these different, uh, you know, material components, structures on animals, and then then the behavior and motion of the animals, how they locomote in different environments. Because if you look at animals, they can do at the same time so many different behavior. It's not only they don't just fly, mm. they, they don't just run. They can do so many diverse behavior and they can adapt. And, and also, of course, they are very intelligent than how they think and understand and make decision making. How can they learn and uh, adapt uh, with the changing conditions? 
I think at every stage, uh, how they communicate even, uh, we know many things, but we have still many also unknowns that uh, especially depends on the animal type in the sense of scale. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at, yeah, I think we have still a lot of things to understand and learn from. Yeah. And do you remember what is the first maybe soft robot you build? And what's the feeling you had when you built this first robot? Yeah. Uh, so the first soft robotics project we had was um, when I was uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Mm. Uh, when I was teaching, uh, I was uh, amazed by, uh, of course, jellyfishes and many different soft-bodied animals. Of course, octopi are one of the most amazing soft-bodied uh, organisms, amazed. And when I taught bio-inspired robotics, um, I gave homework questions on um, understanding how those salt bodies behave and can you build a robot similar to that. In the sense of real robot that we built in my lab the first time was um, indeed um, a, um, a soft capsule robot mm -hmm. that uh, you could swallow and it goes to stomach. Uh, it had small magnets inside that when you apply field from outside, it could compress itself from outside because it's soft. And then a needle or any drug could come out so that the shape changing could be used for functions uh, in the sense of therapeutics mm -hmm. um, and also doing other mechanical measurements with some kind of a, like a tactile sensor. So that was the first time we came up uh, when even soft robotics was not a hot topic because I said to my student, look, we should do something very interesting and different. Everyone builds rigid robots, capsule mm -hmm. robots in the body with a camera. Why not to make it soft and see like we, what kind of diversity and different behavior we can get? And that way we started with curiosity um, and, that, and then we ended up seeing a lot of interesting uh, functions just by a very mm -hmm. simple soft by axial uh, contraction expansion we could control from outside mm -hmm. of the body. That's interesting, yeah. So maybe the first question comes in this part, how you would define soft robotics from your the experience you had? And what do you think may be the most important question we have to consider? Um, Soft-bodied robots have a lot of great potential uh, that we, it's a, basically offering us new design space for robots in the sense of uh, how to program shape, uh, how mm. to create much diverse and complex behavior than just rigid linear systems. So in that sense, I think uh, we have a lot of opportunities for creating more advanced complex designs which can passively deform and adapt the environment themselves without thinking or without actuating. And also because of their softness, they are very safe in track. All these kind of advantages of soft systems uh, are so important and interesting that uh, I think uh, we can learn a lot from such soft uh, body mechanics and behavior and functionalities that are not possible to achieve or very hard to achieve by rigid systems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would like to stop again at the point you mentioned. I mean, in the beginning, you said that you have the curiosity and you would like to make maybe interesting ideas. But when we look, because that's something we witness in academia, sometimes we struggle to come up with maybe new ideas that outside the mainstream. And still you combine both of them, maybe the curiosity and maybe new ideas outside of the box, if we can say. And at the same time, it has success from academic perspective. How you manage to do that? Because I think it's it's tricky, and sometimes when I speak with um, in the podcast, uh, it's, it's we highlight there's a risk in research. Sometimes some academician afraid to go for risky ideas because of maybe you're not sure it's uncertain if it's going to work or not. How how you manage to do that? Um, that's a great question, and. Um... I think in that regard, one thing maybe I miss saying uh, from my even childhood time is, mm. besides curiosity, one one important thing is I really love art and I really love painting and I still do once a while. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things we can learn from art and uh, to science that, uh, you know, um, creativity is something also should come from not only being a good researcher, it comes really from a personality of how much you're into arts and other design ideas where you already experience personal creativity that you put your own individual dreams and interests into mm. some uh, artifacts uh, as an art form or then eventually that art form can turn into an also scientific uh, you know artifact so mm. um, i believe there's a lot of things we can learn uh, in the sense of creativity 
from art and other areas uh, of our life and, and, and our personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then, as we said, taking risk and uh, being in, taking initiatives. Um, because uh, in academia, as you say, there are people, what we call, I call more followers, that they like to go with the safe stream of already existing ideas. Rather than because when you lead and become new, you are the first. If especially you are the first one, you are alone. Mm-hmm. You are in a dark area. You need to lead people. If you have really great ideas, that means you need to fight yourself alone, take the high risk, and because you might even fail, right? So, mm-hmm. and I think as you say, one important thing we need to also be very careful is we shouldn't be scared of failure. Uh, we don't forget that we learn a lot from also making mistakes. So taking higher risk and also accepting that you might even fail eventually. And that way you can get the self-confidence uh, and power to push things away than uh, existing ways. Uh, and that way, hopefully you can lead and create a new path that hopefully also will uh, be followed by many other people. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, the, the best way to create new ideas fields and then hopefully if they are if you don't fail and if it's really exciting mm-hmm. new game changer rather than again something incremental is right so disruptive changes are more important than just incremental better work which is typically more safer way yeah. but disruptive high risk ones um are the ones typically bring us the much disruptive changes uh but yeah i mean and if you can go that path and, and survive uh, at the end, hopefully, it could be very exciting for everyone. That's interesting. I really like this answer. Yeah. And if I ask you, maybe, what is an area or direction of research in soft robotics you think is very promising, but maybe as a community, we seem to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment. What that thing could be, research line, do you think, still, yeah, there's not much focus on it? Um, so let me start. Maybe first part. You said uh, the directions that are promising for yeah. My side. What what is area of, or direction of research you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I mean, of course, first core thing in software robotics is the material science part. Mm-hmm where we need to really tailor and develop new soft multifunctional materials that of course uh, have been focused in the field and and then creating sensing and also mechanically doing work with these materials uh, with structuring and making mechanisms and everything all together so there are a lot of aspects i think uh, are exciting um and I could say the the field is putting many focus and uh, significance to those areas, but maybe um, mm. sometime you know the the way I think is we shouldn't be obsessed to just make the whole robot fully soft every time. So Octopus is a great system, mm. but I think to me it's more like how can we learn by designing and building robots soft? But eventually, I think the field most probably will go to the direction of and end up at the end a hybrid designs where. We will have like our bodies uh, rigid elements with soft together rather than only soft so that we don't need to obsess uh, by that idea of being everything soft mm-hmm. so um yeah i think uh, maybe appreciation wise uh i would say you know the field is, is so diverse and growing fast that i i see the nice thing is that control is very difficult besides materials uh, and actuation methods are so diverse which would work the best but I think making untethered soft devices is to me that is maybe the one that is less um, emphasized. Mm. Uh, most people are using greatly pneumatics and hydraulics, which is which are great methods uh, for actuation, especially. Uh, that is fine for manipulation systems, soft creepers. But if you want to build soft mobile robots uh, to make them wireless, I think uh, how to create wireless actuation on board uh, with all integrated, also eventually control and, and computation, those areas are still, I could say, in the very early infancy times. With compared to a lot of great demonstrations of salt-bodied actuation systems, mm-hmm. mostly tethered, but with a lot of interesting behavior and applications coming up. But I think in the basic part, still uh, wireless salt systems with all different other components on board. Mm-hmm. Um, those are areas. Picking interest, but uh, we need to emphasize more. 
That's very interesting. Maybe we can break it again. The first equation here about the material, and you mentioned that if we want to combine actuation and sensing in the same, to be had like multifunctionality for this material. Do you think, firstly, we understand physics behind the smart material we develop? And do you think that the community had shifted focus from passive material to responsive material, or the material can compute its uh, functionalities internally, like uh, if we speak about ionic conductive polymer or any smart polymers? Do you think that's something we have to shift to focus? And do you think we understand how this material behave, or we still have to understand deeply how they behave? Yeah, uh, definitely to create functional soft robots, the soft material components should go from passive, uh, just elastomers or composites to more advanced uh, multifunctional and responsive, as you mentioned, uh, material direction. Because uh, as we say, like there are uh, parts where you need to actuate and at the same time, uh, maybe the, that same body needs to react to temperature change or light change or, or acidity in the environment. Uh, and then um, uh, there could be also kind of computation logic mm -hmm. system integrated by the inside the material, what I call physical intelligence, by the way. So my group is also called physical intelligence. And, and really the idea is, uh, for example, we can call under that category of material intelligence that how much we can encode intelligence mm -hmm. uh, into material in the sense of perception, sensing, acting, and also adapting, uh, and also computation. So those are things I think the future of soft systems would be by using very multifunctional responsive materials uh, to create these all components rather than just actuation or just sensing or just uh, mechanical components um, that uh, will go beyond and be more, uh, as you say, smart or integrated you know, together um, mm. in the same body, uh, but with all these different functionalities uh, with, because of the complexity of the material design. Mm -hmm. And what could be maybe the kind of material you aspire, maybe optimum material you aspire to have? Or you imagine that it, that would be the optimum material? I wish. I um, yeah, I mean, uh, we work on so many different materials. Uh, what, one thing you learn on when you work on any type of robotics, not only necessarily soft robots, mm -hmm. there is always a big library of materials in the sense of responsive or passive uh, or active or passive materials that you need to choose for a given design and application. Because uh, if you are building a soft uh, swimming robot underwater versus a flying robot versus crawling robot and, and its medical application versus some another application. So requirements are so different that uh, typically there is no one winner mm -hmm. material, an actuator or, or response material. That's why we typically have library and I can say the exciting ones these days we are looking at our uh, uh, liquid crucial elastomers, which are very functional, interesting uh, materials that have a lot of programming capability. Uh, in the sense of functionality and mechanical stiffness, anisotropy, uh, mm. also other viscoelastic properties potentially, and then composite elastomers with magnetic and other uh, elements uh, embedded inside that can be responsive to magnetic fields or other stimuli in the environment, but um, and they can also carry drugs or other functional elements on, on the same material so that we can really embed a lot of functionality mm -hmm. due to being composite or due to being liquid crystal elastomer or, and also there are hydrogels uh, we are looking at. So these are all, mm -hmm. uh, and also biomaterials. I mean, one very interesting area for us is uh, besides inspiration, we take real biological materials. For example, we recently took squid uh, ring teeth, which is a protein in nature that is very strong, also has a lot of superior mechanical and heat transfer and other chemical properties that we took from the animal and even synthetically engineered it so that it could turn into self-healing, but also very functional biological material that we can use in our, on our robots. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I think besides inspiration, we should really look nature, gelatin, uh, this kind of protein, and there mm -hmm. are many biological materials that can be used to build robots, mm -hmm. especially soft robots, would be very exciting. Great. Yeah. I'm going to ask you also this question because I don't know if that's maybe, uh, maybe applied to any conductive bomb in the case. We witness sometimes there's a trade off between the mechanical performance and response time. I think it reports in soft robotics, it's pretty slow. 
How do you see this trade-off between the mechanical performance you aspire to have and response time? And why there's always a trade-off? And do you think that's always a generic case in software? <laughs> no, I mean, if you look at in engineering and science, typically there is always trade-off. Otherwise, there will be only one winner, and that's against the concept of diversity and mm. multiple choices. So that's why nature also evolved to be always mm. offering always uh, trade-offs so that there is no one unique winner every time. So, yeah, I mean, in engineering systems, that's the same physical law. Uh, I mean, if you're so soft uh, with the low stiffness, I mean, more than the speed, I think the biggest barrier is your force output is always so low because you're mechanically so soft that any even deformation you get, you will be very gentle, which is great for a lot of applications. But if you want to open a door handle, um, you wouldn't maybe have enough force to grab and turn it. So in that sense, uh, while you gain a lot by being very soft, you are also losing some capabilities. That's why if you look at our bodies, eventual future direction is how to make tunable materials that are sometimes very soft and sometimes turn into very stiff material because mm -hmm. of architecture or because of the material composition that you can switch from very stiff to very soft. So those are many different ways to do, but I think that's a really an exciting direction where you can take advantage of both, both rigid systems and soft systems at the same time so that you minimize trade-offs. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as you say, like there is always, if in the actuator selection, you know, for example, we use a lot of magnetic actuation. I mean, attractive mm -hmm. polymers, as you say, is, is very interesting also. Uh, and as you mentioned, if they get very large deformation, then typically their force is low uh, or their frequency is very low because they are so soft. Uh, so how to make really fast, very relatively good force output and large deformation actuators, there is no easy solution. And one solution we have is magnetic, but then you assume that the actuation is done in a given workspace, not in the air or in a random place. So if you confine this workspace, then we can use external fields to create fast and large deformation and all these things we can get much much better but eventually with your material properties if it is fixed to be soft you can only apply low forces that's mm -hmm. unavoidable trade-off so in that sense you know uh, to really go beyond these trade-offs you need to go more adaptive switchable tunable mechanisms and materials that will take you a better level but at the end, physical laws are again always conflicting, and that's why, at the end, you cannot do everything at the same time best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That I can say against the law of physics, because when you optimize for one factor, uh, typically you lose from some other factor. Uh, but uh, typically, as engineers or scientists, what we do is for a given application or objectives, we try to maximize most of them as much as good, but not necessarily all of them, and that's still okay for most of the applications we want to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I would like to ask you this question. I think maybe many question, many students ask this question. You have really, I really, I think, revolutionary maybe ideas. How you can figure out this idea or maybe get inspiration? I'm going, for example, in Geco inspired microfiber or wireless miniature medical soft robotics. How you can with your team get these ideas, or how you find a solution for that, or maybe inspiration for that? Yeah, um, so the, the first step of it is brainstorming, exploration, and this curiosity thing. So mm -hmm. just like uh, having crazy ideas and let's give it a try. Uh, and, and at the beginning, even don't worry about full simulation and understanding, mm -hmm. but then just uh, have some concept, an idea, and let's try and see what's interesting. The, the one thing we need to understand well is these all crazy ideas don't appear at one night. They don't come in your dream and happen tomorrow. Yeah. Typically, there is a process of all this curiosity first, exploration a lot, and then you see some interesting uh, result. And then you work on it and, uh, and work on it, work on it. Eventually, you need the big step of achievement of this crazy new idea only happens after those years of exploration and many um, developments and suddenly uh, because even many of these crazy ideas don't work in the first time. If they work, that means that's a simple idea mm -hmm. and maybe even not so exciting. So Gecko Fibers, you mentioned, uh, of, we had the idea, but we tried, tried, we failed for years. I mean, the history mm -hmm. of that uh, exciting research was uh, at the beginning was full of failure with my students that we couldn't really 
get the performance by any means close to animals. But then we figure out some suddenly detailed, but after a lot of thought experiments and, and also discussions that at the end, suddenly, uh, uh, you know, there is this, mm. this continuity that things start working and then, yeah, the, the excitement really goes up. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, what I mean is there's a lot of persistence mm. and hard work needed to get that breakthrough idea at the end to the people. Because, yeah. again, when you go, go out, it's not only idea, it's also a working system with showing the excitement of the idea. So that's a lot of effort and both mentally, but also, um, you know, research wise. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why, I mean, it's like a game that you need to just explore and play. And yeah. uh, but then when you see the light slowly, slowly, then make it happen and then uh, show people that it has very exciting things. So that's why uh, in parallel, my style is I have many crazy ideas at the same time mm -hmm. that we explore. Uh, and, and when we see that they are really start to work, then we turn them into publications and also some uh, demonstrations that will then excite hopefully people. Uh, mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I could say it's a lot of hard work of parallel uh, crazy ideas that we need to persistently work. I mean, don't give up. That's one important thing because mm. most of these ideas take a lot of time and they typically fail again at the beginning. Uh, but if you persist with the conscious knowledge of what you want to do mm. and achieve, um, uh, most of the time after that persistence, um, you reach to this, hopefully, uh, this amazing breakthrough uh, discovery or, yeah. or things start working and then, you know, real excitement starts. And those people who persisted eventually win, uh, but the, who gives up, they, they don't get there, unfortunately. That's very wise words, yeah. I'd like to stress again about physical intelligence because I think um, that's something I think the community started grasping this object, uh, or I mean, it's the subject about physical intelligence. And I would like to ask you about uh, nonlinearities in, uh, in the material. I think um, that's, yeah, I think the research line is starting that how we can couple the geometric and material nonlinearities so that we can get interesting information. And when we look, for example, the dead fish swimming upstream and, and how this fascinating is still functioning in the, according to morphology and the environment and still the, the functioning in, in like this, this movement we have. So how do you think about nonlinearities in the material and how do you think we can access this beneficial geometric and material nonlinearities? Um, nonlinearity is really an essential part of soft systems. And, and even if you look at in general nonlinearity or nonlinear systems, mm -hmm. the big advantage of nonlinear systems is depends on the initial conditions and depends on the dynamics. You can reach to so many diverse behavior. Mm -hmm. As I emphasized diversity from the beginning, nonlinearity is exciting and linearity is boring to me because linearity you can predict and know what you will get next as a rigid system or as a linear system. Mm. So that part, I think we have very good understanding and, and, and they work great in many engineering systems. But uh, when you wanna go beyond boring, predictable future to more exciting, uh, diverse uh, behaviors or future or research directions, then this soft material non-narity enables you with given uh, inputs, you can reach to things that um, not possible to reach bilinearly or so diverse that you can go different multi-stable states, for example. That mm -hmm. is not possible with a linear system. You can have chaotic behavior. You can have other nonlinear behavior. Mm -hmm. Those are the behaviors that can induce self-oscillation. I mean, you can have a self-oscillating mechanical system because of nonlinearity. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why nonlinearity to me adds complexity to and diversity of what you can achieve out of given one material. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. why we should really utilize it as much as possible in, by large deformations and by many other nonlinearities uh, to our advantage. Like, for example, bistability is a nonlinear behavior so that you can have functions that are bistable. That means I can build a clamping device that can, because of nonlinearity, can have two stable states, then mm -hmm. I can have a beautiful device that can clamp when I want and open when I want. So these capabilities can be achieved by smart usage of nonlinearity. Uh, and that's a great complex design problem, how to embed and use nonlinearity into your materials to your advantage. Because also mm -hmm. it becomes harder to control. Don't forget, again, nothing comes free and there's always trade-off. So while you get all this diversity and added complexity, 
then don't forget that control gets much more complicated. So yeah, I mean, then you give up on control and say, look, I control less, but I have more interesting behavior. That's very interesting, yeah. And maybe I'm curious to ask you in that case, once we maybe figure out how we can get this beneficial formation from this knowledge, do you think this can be replaced the control or traditional control design? I think that's a debate on the field, um, whether we have to maybe figure out new techniques of beyond the traditional control schemes, or maybe figuring out what could be the most important morphological parameter from the physical intelligence that could be enhanced as a control design, or maybe replace it at all. So what's your thought about the traditional control for soft robotics? Um, yeah, I mean, control of soft systems itself is a very exciting and relatively new area where I, I feel there's a lot of potential. Uh, as we talked about all these complexities of non-narities um, and, and degrees of freedom we have with so much, uh, you know, being salt body. Um, so I, I think first thing is, yeah, we need to be careful about our objectives first before getting into control approach. Mm -hmm. uh, if you expect very precise behavior from soft systems, then you make your control problem so complicated and so tough. Uh, and also you need to be fair that, again, soft systems, they can tolerate errors much better than rigid systems. That's why I think first, our expectations should change from soft systems uh, in the sense of precision, in the sense of, as we talk, speed also could be uh, less important and depends on the application. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you choose the right of uh, expectations that is fair for soft systems, uh, then control, as you say, can be first simplified by using soft body non-narities. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, traditional or not traditional, let's say one example is that when you want to grasp a complex object with a soft gripper, um, rather than planning and measuring and feedback controlling your individual contact points by passively adapting and, and mechanically grabbing uh, the complex object with your soft passive nonlinear behavior, uh, that makes your gripping control much simpler. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but if you want to release this part with very high precision, that's a different story. There you will have, of course, some errors. Uh, and again, depends on how you design the system, that error could be tolerable mm -hmm. and then all is fine. But yeah, I mean, the first is we can simplify control and even in some cases almost get rid of it if you use fully passive body deformations to achieve your gripping or adaptation and the function objective you want to achieve in the given environment. Mm -hmm. However, typically most of the applications need to have active uh, tasks that also need some feedback control. Then, um, you know, model-based control is very challenging with the non-narities. That's why I think we are going in the direction of more and more learning-based or models that are learned by data or data-driven approaches are becoming uh, more and more popular in soft systems because of complexity of the body dynamics. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, and, the, and the kinematics. So mm -hmm. that's why uh, one direction we are doing in my group is doing uh, control by learning. This is also even for behavior learning or design, uh, because you can have so much behavior possible with soft non-narities that most of the time, even we don't discover and know what are possible all cases. That's mm -hmm. why I think data-driven learning techniques might explore a large design space and also control space mm -hmm. that can hopefully make these systems more interesting for behavior plus uh, possible to control. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe that's related about the design process. And I think if we speak about the miniature uh, medical soft robotics, how challenging when you design a model in this scale? And do you think, because that's something we have, uh, having reproducible uh, research or maybe designs, and, and do you think maybe modeling and, and reaching to design the recipe is something missing in the field? Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know what you're thought about the design and the modeling of such a scale, like what you do, very small scale um, that you're already uh, doing right now. If you can tell us about yeah. what are the challenges, why, why do, you, do you think modeling is still underappreciated? Do you think we have a, a reproducibility problem, uh, how we can have a design recipe? Um, as you say, first, for getting even length scale uh, as a general robot, soft robot design problem, um, uh, as, as, as you say, modeling and simulation uh, tools are very crucial. Because right now we have a lot of heuristic designs that are case by case coming up with interesting behavior and dynamics and, you know, results. But um, methodology wise, design methodology 
is right now not that rigorous in many cases. So mm -hmm. that's why going with uh, model-based uh, or some simulation tool-based design tools would be great. And the dream would be, mm -hmm. like nature does, if we can develop evolutionary algorithms that can design self-evolve designs that will achieve the given objective with the given responsive materials that you design and use in your uh, robots. So that's the dream of the design methodology part of our research and also of the field mm -hmm. that um, we can have such uh, more automatic ways to generate designs that are suboptimal because of non-nerd, you can never get global, but locally optimal solutions that will achieve the functions we want to get out of this soft robot. So that's, I think, a general problem. Mm -hmm. Coming to the small scale soft robots and medical ones, um, when you scale down, the, comp the difficulties get higher and higher from both uh, physical loads because of scaling loads, inertia get less, surface stickiness increase, friction increase, non-nurtures get worse. Uh, you have so much limited space, you cannot put anything on board, mm -hmm. everything on board, let's say power, uh, computation, everything. So your limitations and your physical load changes uh, make things harder and harder. Um, that's why we typically go uh, to approaches to external actuate and control these soft robots rather than on board when you get really, really small in many cases. So yeah, in that sense, you need to really dr drastically change your methods of actuation and materials um, and, and, and dynamics at the very small scale. That's why in my group, we typically uh, try to come up with uh, more uh, smaller scale mm -hmm. uh, principles, materials, methods that can be also manufactured at the small scale. Manufacturing also is very complicated when you go very, very small for 3D salt bodies. So yeah, I mean, in that sense, all aspects of robotics uh, from design, manufacturing, control, materials, everything, we need to uh, change uh, drastically at the small scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but I could say there are a lot of exciting solutions, synthetic solutions and biohybrid have solutions that we have could work uh, from milliscale down to cell cell size scale these days, which is, I think, the exciting uh, direction and developments in the field. Uh, good point. Yeah. And maybe I'm curious to ask you about the challenges and limitation for wireless miniature medical stock robotics. This is, I think, bronzing. But if you can tell us what maybe the realistic challenges and limitation you're facing right now. Um, when you are wireless and very tiny, as I mentioned, the limitation issue is become so dominant. So limitation means size limitation first, mm -hmm. that because of small size, everything needs to get small. A battery needs to be so small that because of so small size, its volume is so tiny that it will only operate for a few minutes. So your, uh, for example, powering duration goes down drastically with the length scale. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then actuation and many other aspects, again, get challenging. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, when you are very uh, small and wireless, that's why we need to come up with much creative and new solutions than just trying to use uh, tethered solutions with hydraulics, pneumatics. But if you look at those systems at the behind, there is a huge mm -hmm. infrastructure needed. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I think uh, one idea is really try to use stimulus in the environment, let's say light in the environment or, mm -hmm. or other temperature or chemicals in the environment to induce you energy or actuation uh, and so that you minimize your requirements of powering, your requirements of control. You need to be very minimalist if you are so tiny mm -hmm. because of uh, control can be very, uh, will be very limited with the limited computation and memory you only uh, achieve very simple comp control tasks. Um, so you cannot do fancy advanced controllers. So all of these limitations will, uh, is, is are forcing us to come up with different ways of actuating, controlling, and also functionalizing these tiny systems. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to ask you, was there any direction in your research you thought would work out very well but when you did the experiment on miracle work, it was very interesting. You didn't expect it. Maybe it was counterintuitive to you. Did something happen to you like that in the research? Um, definitely uh, counterintuitive or your simulation says the robot should work this way in the soft robot case, but it works differently. Mm -hmm. We have many of those cases. And, and because the reason is, complexity of the multi-physics of soft systems. Uh, and an example of that is, let's say, we have an, un we have an undulating body-based soft swimmer uh, at yep. the mini scale. 
when the body creates this traveling wave, it's also interacting with the fluid around it. And because of its softness, while it creates proportion, it also interacts with the fluid. And that coupling between fluid and the shape deformation can be so significant, depends on the softness and manufacturers and the speed of the body, that induce very complex physics that if your simulations don't capture that complexity, your prediction uh, with a simplified model will be typically wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's we saw many cases that uh, simplified models, unfortunately, don't work uh, in many of the soft, uh, especially swimming or in fluid interacting robots. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why, unfortunately, we need to go more advanced computation fluid dynamics uh, simulations with body structure interactions because of the salt body uh, and kind of more, more advanced things so that we collaborate close with very theoretical computational groups to push the uh, modeling and simulation tools that we can predict more accurate behavior. Uh, but those are typically for explaining the dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about design though, for design, unfortunately, very complex models are so computationally intensive that yeah. you cannot design a robot with understanding all the complex physics. So that's why, unfortunately, or not unfortunately, let's say, mm -hmm. as one approach for design purposes, we go simplified approaches. We know that the behavior is not fully predictive, accurate, but still good enough for guidelines of the design. But at the end, after you come up with designs, we check the reality, and then we also check more advanced simulation for accurate one, uh, but then uh, maybe go back some iterations. So th that's that's the way that um, current uh, computational limits uh, make us to go for simpler models, use the, use them for design, and then uh, for the prototypes, we go more advanced one and iterate. Uh, I wish in the future with the increased uh, computational powers, we might also embed more complex physics into the design tools. Mm -hmm. That way, hopefully, we might come up with more accurate soft designs uh, without doing this kind of extra iterations in the, uh, at the moment that we do. Indeed. I think that's really hot topic, how we can capture dynamics with this computation power. That's something I think uh, very interesting. And maybe I'm curious to ask you about the intelligence in the material or maybe in soft system. Do you think that system we develop should be more protective and less dependent on the feedback? Um, so, ideally, of course, if you could be could have predictive behavior, that's great. But with the non-narrative of the system, plus, hmm. don't forget the environment interaction is so dynamic and changing with the forces from the environment. Um, so that predictive models, unfortunately, only work for structured environment applications. Mm -hmm. and, and for example, in our soft uh, medical tiny robots, environment is so complex with the fluid flows, with the body reactions and many things. Um, unfortunately, by again, learning by mistake that predictive control or open loop control could only work for very, very simple, maybe clamping if you're lucky, but typically unit feedback all the time. Yeah. So again, because of safety also, I mean, you cannot just leave the robot and, and assume it will do anything it wants and you don't need to be precise. So, uh, but for some applications for monitoring environment or for less safety issues cases, uh, um, you can live with predictive, both model-based and also, or just open loop control methods uh, that could work, but, uh, in most of our soft robot applications towards medical use, uh, our experience has been that feedback is always required for both safety, but also for achieving the functions with all the dynamic environmental changes uh, interacting uh, with the robot. Yeah. So maybe hey, we have some audience question. The first one, how do you implement electronic sensory devices without renewing uh, the soft aspect of the robot? And what do you think uh, was your most interesting project? Um, we haven't focused too much on electronics uh, kind of interact, inter uh, integration to our salt body systems much. We did soft sensors uh, a lot with composite materials with one of my students. Um, that is possible these days as wireless, especially wearable, uh, relatively mm -hmm. soft uh, devices are so now a hot topic. Um, that's, uh, I think, in that case, there are many composite or 
nanomaterials like graphene like or carbon uh, graphite or a lot of options coming up to create both conductive and non-conductive elements that can turn into both circuits plus uh, functional soft, uh, soft sensors or actuators. So we have done some progress, uh, but I would say since there are a lot of people are working on those areas, and, and as, as also as I mentioned, I don't think necessarily we need to make everything soft in in most of the medical robots. Uh, if you want to just make a very variable, very 3D conformable soft devices, then of course integrating and making their electronics and other components also fully soft would make sense. Um, but that's not a focus area right now in our group. Mm -hmm. Uh, but definitely, um, there are a lot of interesting challenges uh, besides electronics. Don't forget also powering techniques or at least wireless powering techniques. So we are doing some wireless powering methods. So you can embed basically coils into the soft body elements and those coils could be used for electromagnetic power transfer. So yeah, there are different ways to power and make circuits on soft systems with liquid metals, with other composites. So there are a lot of exciting developments going on uh, in the literature that I, we are following very closely. But we are um, not putting too much emphasis on that at the moment because we still try to uh, use material itself for such uh, sensory and computational and also even uh, interaction with the environment as a power source for now uh, to minimize such electronic uh, devices because of our robots need to be so small, mini scale or sub mini scale, mm -hmm. that we don't have too much space to put electronics too much. Mm -hmm. And what is your aspiration? What you aspire in the fields of robotics? And uh, for example, in the miniature uh, software robot, do you think that something could be deployed for cancer treatment? And do you, do you think it's how many years expect that could happen? Um, one big, I think, challenge in the soft robotics community is finding really high impact killer applications uh, mm. to show that these all interesting nonlinear and uh, adaptive shape programmable behavior have really advantages. So in that sense, uh, my group and myself have been pushing hard on wireless soft medical devices to show this potential mm. uh, as one of the case studies as, as high impact um, disruptive applications of soft robotics because uh, of safety issues, because of very complex shape uh, deformations, giving a lot of interesting function and beha mm -hmm. behavior. Uh, we believe uh, there is a very promising uh, future, uh, both in science and research, but also eventually for real clinical applications um, by building these devices. Uh, we, we, we believe there is a lot of opportunities there to change the whole medical device field mm -hmm. by turning them from rigid devices into soft devices in not every application, but in many applications to uh, change the whole game and enable and mm -hmm. cure diseases that haven't been even curable before. As you mentioned, cancer is one example of uh, soft robots going and delivering drugs in the right target area, but also clogging vessels for um, embolization or uh, birth control or even opening uh, is possible by carrying drugs around and heating these robots from remote uh, areas. So there are many functionalities we are currently exploring from delivering drugs to heating and uh, hyperthermia-based killing and um, and also biopsy of uh, fluids and also cells in the body. Uh, there's a lot of potential that we believe uh, these tiny soft devices will will have um, in the near future in the medical field. Yeah. Now, also this question asked, why the translation of soft robotics into industry is so challenging? Is it because of the manufacturing process or modeling soft robots? And where do you think the breakthrough is missing? Um, my experience uh, of, in general, taking any exciting research that has been working in the lab yeah. that is translated into a commercial products, uh, there is in between a lot of research is needed. As you mentioned, one aspect is manufacturing of these robots. Mm -hmm. uh, in the lab, uh, you can manufacture them in expensive ways or in slow ways, in days. Uh, so you need to make really fast uh, high throughput, high yield manufacturing of these soft systems 
that's not easy and not easy to reproduce and get a very high yield, mm -hmm. especially when you had complex functional devices. So that's, I think, in, in general, one big issue of manufacturing. And then, um, uh, so getting all these functionalities and having specific application in mind to make sure that you solve a big, unique problem that is important for clinics or for any application. Uh, but I could say typically manufacturing and then eventually control and and, and make sure that it, it achieves its function all the time repeatedly. Mm -hmm. So those are things that uh, we need to see more and more examples. Yeah. Because soft systems, because of their nonlinearities, they might be harder to reproduce the same performance every time. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think in the real implementation or translation, I believe there will be much... Uh, manufacturing and also performance and repeatable to related challenges that uh, we need to overcome. Right. Uh, yeah. And we will. I mean, that's some, those are things we are working on. We'll have a startup in the near future to commercialize some of our soft devices. Mm -hmm. And there we'd like to solve those. We can call engineering challenges, but still to me, some of them are still research challenge because high throughput, high yield manufacturing is not a trivial engineering problem or soft type of non-conventional devices. That's interesting. So we'll close it hand and ha uh, we have a few questions. The first one, how can we enable more inclusive culture around competitive idea? We ask this question um, because we, in academia, we have, I think, a competition. And I think, with, especially about funding, and that's lead to severe competition. And if you have new idea, it sometimes may be it's risky uh, to be accepted, especially if you're a junior researcher. I don't know what you thought about this uh, competition. And also, do you think you are intellectually inclusive or we still have to make effort to be intellectually inclusive in the field? Uh, that's a very uh, interesting challenge that I think academy, uh, to me, uh, suffers from. Mm -hmm. uh, depends also on the culture of the even groups or universities. Um, I see that more and more competition is... Um, creating more secrecy and, as you say, less inclusion of different people, that's to me very dangerous for the development of science. Mm. Um, what I, I, I like as style is I like more open-minded, uh, open, uh, like sharing ideas from the very beginning rather than hiding them because of competition. There's always challenges that someone might misuse it, but that's life. If you have always more ideas, you, eventually you will always succeed anyway. Uh, so that share with everyone, include as much as people uh, with these ideas, share, uh, get the input and feedback, and also collaborate. So these topics are so interdisciplinary. There is no way one researcher or even one group can do all the required science and engineering to achieve uh, working soft systems for different applications. That's why mm -hmm. you need to also be culturally really open to be interdisciplinary and working, collaborating with people. That means you need to trust people, you need to share, and uh, and uh, competition should be only friendly, fun competition, not aggressive, negative, hiding, and secrecy type of competition, which I really hate. Yeah. And this I don't, I don't encourage by any means such behavior in my group, mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, I learned by, I, I honestly, I've been doing this all the time now, 20 years, by sharing, you learn, because also most people think that they have so much amazing, crazy, good ideas. Mm -hmm. And when you share, also you learn much ahead of time that they were mostly wrong or uh, not a good idea. Someone did it already. So that um, inclusion and sharing will also get you more success and, uh, ex uh, you know, breakthroughs easier rather mm -hmm. than hiding yourself and being very competitive. Mm -hmm. Really, uh, that culture, uh, unfortunately, is also encouraged, say, by sometimes funding agencies or by different uh, cultural behavior that uh, academia should prevent. Mm -hmm. We that need to develop means to make sure that our students and postdocs and everyone should feel comfortable to share ideas, um, to you know get feedback and and learn from each other plus collaborate with each other. Mm -hmm. That's really a good point. But I'm curious also ask you, where do you think this problem come from? And maybe a solution for that. Of course, it, it, what you mentioned, I think it's up to each researcher, but the reality is different. And where do you think this problem come from in the first place? Where the kind of hiding and competition, and it leads negative or toxicity sometimes. Uh, yeah, I mean, so 
because as we say, sometimes publications, funding agencies, uh, uh, and again, typically this personal and group related uh, in, you know, environment. Uh, but um, as you say, like, I mean, uh, people think that, of course, one thing is the resources are very limited. Funding is limited. Yeah. Uh, to get into high impact journals, uh, there, there, you need to do a lot of work and there are not so many people get in there. So I think with all these uh, challenges of how to become uh, a high impact successful researcher, uh, people uh, misconceive that they should be, they think they should be more selfish and secrecy, mm. uh, more uh, uh, protecting their ideas to themselves. That way they think in this environment they could uh, you know, publish uh, very exciting papers or get more funding mm -hmm. or get more patents. I mean, patents are one big issue also, I can say, secrecy. I mean, if you want to get a patent, that's a real legal problem. Mm. Uh, you can share with people, but you need to be careful how much you share so that that doesn't prevent you to file a patent. Uh, patent laws in that sense are, are also a, a challenge. And other things, industry interactions. Uh, if you talk with people in industry, um, their culture and behavior is much more different. That that's also make academicians a little bit more secretive. Yeah. And that I can understand many times because of, especially in medical device field, so aggressive, mm -hmm. so protective that they can take your ideas and patent it even. And and big thing is in patent law, which I hate about, is yeah. a company if they file a patent on your research topic. In, in theory, they can stop your research because they can say that I have this idea patented, you can't work on it. So that should, I mean, that of course, because of ethical issues, mostly don't happen. Yeah. But uh, being even uh, thinking about the possibility of such things uh, make, I think, many researchers uncomfortable sometime and, and they are, uh, so that's why we need to create environments that mm. they are not threatened by these uh, things. Uh, and also, I think uh, other cultural issue these days is most of my students and postdocs, they think the best researchers just should publish in high impact journals only. Mm. And that's the whole goal. No, that's politics. That's that's not real science and research. Real fun is really be productive and, and really achieve your dreams. And mm -hmm. sometimes you even get into much low impact conferences or journals and whatever publications. But at the end, uh, people in your field would appreciate and know how much impact you create, but not because you have this X journals yep. uh, paper. So that also should change culturally. That unfortunately is also, I call politics of science have a lot of aspects that unfortunately directs many researchers into high competition yep. and uh, being less inclusive that we should change. Thanks a lot. I think that's really a wonderful answer. Yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Uh, I think typically um, ego is, or strong egos is like, um, are not desirable in research. We have top researchers who have very strong egos. Um, I think to me, more important thing is self-confidence and persistence. Uh, ego can again prevent you uh, from being not open to critics, being not open to changes. Mm. Uh, a top researcher should be open all the time to get feedback and input from people and and learn and listen and adapt. So that's why to me, like, while you are, of course, in strong as an individual, so that you're confident and know what you're doing, I, I think um, I would prefer much uh, humble people. I did my PhD in Japan. I really love yeah. how humble they are that uh, while, you know, you do a lot of great things, uh, you know, you should not use your ego against you and just use it for your confidence and persistence. So in that sense, if you use it positively, that's great. But if you use it negatively, that will become your nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, when you look back to your journey and after winning this award uh, with your team, that when you're looking back, what thing, what you're feeling after that, when you look being a successful researcher and this achievement, as you as a human, what, what do you think about yourself? Deep down, yeah. You know, you know, one other challenge I see is like many of my researchers or our researchers uh, or communities, sometimes they, they 
uh, put their objectives into awards. Even in, in Max Planck Society, we have amazing lot of top scientists that they, of course, uh, many of them get even Nobel Prizes. Yeah. So this is always a question. Uh, should you work do research for getting Nobel Prize or getting X award? Yeah. Uh, in my principle, I'm, uh, I'm fully against that. Um, I think we do these things for all our fun and, and all these dreams. And eventually, the only thing I like about awards is that's the only that's the time um, somebody appreciates mm -hmm. uh, what you do, and then the public hears about your work more. So what I'm happy is when normal people on the street know about what we do mm. and even appreciating it, that's a great satisfaction so that we can communicate them what we are doing and uh, they know about us more and what, what we are doing, why we are doing. Mm. Those are things becoming possible with some of these awards that will get into uh, publicity and uh, reach to a lot of people around the world and also in your given country. Yeah. I think that's a positive aspect of it. Um, that's what I really uh, like uh, once a while, but otherwise, honestly, they don't mean too much and we just keep working on what we have been doing all the time. Uh, so the continue fun uh, research. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I agree. And what could be the most important quality, one quality you have gained while being academia and something you have to maintain for your journey? Uh, I have many of them. Uh, typically, I tell my uh, students when I mentor, the most important one, persistence. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, um, um, yeah, being frank and hardworking. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of qualities you have, unfortunately. Yeah. There is no one. <laughs> so, um, there's, again, as I said always, there is no one winner. There is always yeah. many qualities you need to achieve. Uh, humbleness, uh, uh, friendliness, mm -hmm. uh, being also not a, a nerd guy, nerd, nerd researcher, but being social. And so there are a lot yeah. of aspects that will, I could say like, um, you know, anything in life, not only research to be successful or to be productive, you need to achieve at the same time many qualities. Yeah. That's, that's real life. So you cannot be just an amazing scientist without having right communication skills or right collaborative skills and, and personality, you know, yeah. these things to me are also as important as uh, being an amazing yeah. uh, technical or scientific person. I really like the part there's no one winner. So I think that's something we can reflect even on life. Yeah. And what is what was the best advice was given to you with a person professionally and was a life changing? Um, interestingly, I haven't had much mentors in my life, mm -hmm. and that's why I try to mentor my people a lot, because I've been all around the world in different countries with the different cultures, and I was typically always alone. Uh, but I can say, um, hmm, uh, yeah, I would say just I got some, uh, let's say, feedback from my colleagues about some of the teaching mm -hmm. uh, improvements I could do better that I learned from. Um, there are always things you can learn from with good mentors. Um, that's why I like to do it as much as I can. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, I had some, and, and I could say related teaching and, and in research. Uh, yeah, I just basically, uh, I mean, improvise always most of the time myself. Yeah, I think when you said you were alone as a student, do you think that was a great motivation for you to do what you're doing? I wouldn't take that too positive. I tell my guys, you know, I had that because of whatever conditions uh, I had. Um, uh, indeed, to me, getting mentorship uh, and help is a really important uh, aspect of academia or yeah. life. Because, um, I mean, of course, the nice thing of achieving these things mostly yourself uh, is at the end, you're so independent yourself and you can achieve all these things. You're, you become very strong. Yeah. However, there are a lot of things in life. If someone gave you good advice, you could achieve much easier and faster without sacrificing too much. So that's why uh, good mentorship is really essential yeah. to me uh, for students and researchers, everyone, even professors and all of us every time. Uh, and and, and I'm, I have some personal friends who are kind of my mm. mentors, but mostly they are my, uh, I could say my friends rather than official or professional person only. Uh, mm -hmm. So that we can 
share with our ideas and, and get their feedback and hopefully improve what we would do and or resolve issues. It's all about conflict resolution in our you know, life. So how, especially in those conditions. Another thing about mentorship is, again, we talk about awards and many things. If you have good mentors, they can promote you. They can get you places much easier in the sense of jobs, in the sense of awards. Mm -hmm. Those are things useful that uh, if you have such people to help you, why shouldn't you use them? Yeah. So that should be available as much as possible. I can relate to that so much. I think maybe ministry, and I'm myself, I can relate to that. I think that's maybe a wonderful advice. Yeah. And do you have any final words you'd like to say to the robotics community? Um, I think I'm very happy to be part of the community and um, I look forward to seeing how the field develops uh, and hopefully become very disruptive uh, and very uh, breakthrough uh, impact on many different fields in addition to robotics itself. So yeah, I look forward to working together and, and uh, hopefully reaching amazing future altogether. Thanks a lot for submitting. Such an honor to have you, and I really enjoyed uh, this discussion a lot. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks very much, Marva. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank Th you. Oh, thank you.